There's an elite that thinks a whole bunch of things aren't corrupt. They're just the way things are. And everybody else is saying, wait a sec, the whole system is corrupt. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do and get commercial-free versions of every episode, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, The Ezra Klein Show, Ring of Fire, Ideas, The Bernie Sanders Show, The Young Turks, and Represent Us. Before taking office, the president resigned from the Trump organization and left his sons to run the company, but he still profits from his empire. The question of whether his vast business entanglements violate corruption rules clearly isn't settled. But it shows how far we've come from the original intent of the founders. Because for them, says Zephyr Teachout, author of Corruption in America, even a snuff box could be a source of suspicion. Zephyr, welcome to OTM. It's wonderful to be on. I think Ben Franklin got ensnared by a snuff box, didn't he? Yeah. Franklin had spent some time in France. He was well loved by the French court. Uh, in fact, a lot of people were worried about his loyalties. And then when he was leaving his diplomatic tour, he got this really glamorous, diamond encrusted snuff box. <laughs> and a portrait of the French king. And this caused a fair amount of concern and, in fact, was part of the reason that we have in our Constitution the provision called the Emoluments Clause, which prohibits taking gifts as well as offices and titles of nobility from foreign governments. What's an emolument? Uh, basically, it's situations <laughs> um, in which you're getting paid by foreign governments. I think the easiest way to think about it is something of value. This is one of those rare constitutional clauses that tells you how to read it. It includes this phrase, of any kind, whatever. And it's really clear from reading contemporary understandings of the word emoluments that it covered a broad range of situations, including business enterprises. Why were the founders so concerned about corruption? You call it their constant obsession. These are not naive writers of our Constitution. They've experienced what they perceive as the intense corruption of Britain, and they're all steeped in the story that Rome was torn apart from the inside by corruption. It's saying we are not going to engage in this culture of having financial relationships between diplomats and governments. It's thumbing its nose at European practice, even though they cared so, so deeply about developing their own trading relations. The anti-corruption principle was so important to Americans that they were willing to sacrifice some comfort and ease in those relationships to have this anti-corruption principle. So going back to the snuff boxes. Yes. What did they decide? How did they thread that needle of forbidding gifts while existing in a world where this was the general custom? The practice that developed was to allow Congress to basically bless gifts that came in. Congress would typically say, that's okay, you can keep that snuff box. Or when John Jay got a horse from the government of Spain, Congress gave Jay permission to keep the horse. This congressional check plays this really important role because it brings the relationship into the daylight, the American public through Congress, gets to understand what was the nature of the gift. 
And also then Congress provides this important check if there's anything suspicious, if there's any sense that this might actually lead to either an explicit bribe or to influence that would really undermine the integrity of our decision-making. In your book, you emphasize, and this is really important, that the founders forbid presence, not bribes. No exchange or agreement is required to bring it within the ban. It's really clear that the framers did not think that corruption was just quid pro quo or explicit exchanges. They really understood how humans can be tempted to betray their loyalties without even really being aware of it. So you need rules that, you know, in law, we call these bright line rules or prophylactic rules, rules that basically say you just can't do this category of behavior because there's a significant likelihood that if you're in this category of behavior, something wrong is going to happen. So the category is taking gifts or payments We're not going to necessarily know which ones are influencing, nor are we going to easily discover which ones there might be an agreement around. But we need to ban the category so that we don't risk corruption. But the founders' anti-corruption vision quickly ran into problems, not in Europe, but on our own shores. I'm thinking of a word that if we were alive 200 years ago, you say we would all have an opinion on. Yazoo. Yazoo, yes. The Yazoo scandal really occupied the press and the public. Everybody had a position on Yazoo. So Yazoo refers to the lands in western Georgia. And the Georgia legislature gives away millions of acres for pennies on an acre to land speculators. Mm-hmm. Turns out basically all of the lawmakers who'd voted for this land giveaway were getting paid by the land speculators. Now. The public threw out every lawmaker who'd voted for the deal, right? Yes, and that wasn't enough. They actually had a bonfire (laughs) in the Capitol to burn the bill. And the new lawmakers immediately passed a law saying that law was not a law because it was passed through bribery. You can burn the bill and you can pass a law, but you don't get rid of the larger issue, at least not in this case. That's right. The larger issue here is whether a law stops being a law because it was passed in part because of corruption. And this case goes on for years, finally makes it to the Supreme Court. One of my favorite facts about this case is it's the only case I know of where one of the litigators needed time to sober up halfway through oral (laughs) argument. And basically, the, the question was, Uh, Who really owned the land at this point? Was it still held by the people of Georgia or was it held by the people who had bought their land ownership from the speculators? So the speculators that had bribed the Georgian legislators sold the land to people who thought they had a legitimate contract. And basically the court said the contracts superseded the anti-corruption concerns raised by Georgia. Yeah, that's right. Justice Marshall, who, by the way, had been a land speculator himself, (laughs) said, it's so sad that corruption has crept into our young republic, but it's sort of beyond the scope of this court to pass judgment on what was a fundamentally corrupt contract and what was not. 
And the reason I find this episode really interesting is in part because it shows the awkward relationship between law and corruption. But really until the 1970s, court after court after court understood that protecting against corruption inside our country was one of the jobs of our country and was one of the greatest threats to our country. And then you see that kind of drop away really in the 1970s. So take us there. What happened? So in 1976, the Supreme Court decided a really important case, Buckley versus Vallejo, and struck down some campaign finance laws and set up a two-step process that we've really been living inside ever since. The first step is to ask, when there is a campaign finance rule, does that campaign finance rule infringe on freedom of speech? And the second step is to say, if it does, does it, however, serve an anti-corruption interest? Suddenly, it really matters what corruption means. Because if corruption just means explicit quid pro quo, then a lot of what we think of as anti-corruption laws are going to get struck down. So back in the days of the founders, they recognized that something could be corrupt even if it wasn't illegal. Now you have to find an explicit exchange of something for something, a quid pro quo, and only a complete boob would get caught doing that. So much of this exchange is either behind closed doors or through intermediaries or is just assumed. So the kind of ambiguity in human nature, the indirect influence that the founder saw as corruption is now, strictly speaking, only if you have sold your office or your vote. No, that's right. And the loss is enormous. It's certainly a loss of a central part of our heritage as a country. We were founded on anti-corruption passion, but it was also incredible wisdom. It was an understanding that corruption is this very serious threat to self-government. And we've certainly felt the effects. We felt the effects in the super PACs that have arisen since Citizens United. And we as citizens are left with fewer and fewer tools to fight corruption. What is the Emoluments Clause? And how has Trump run afoul of it? So I'm one of the lawyers on um, a suit representing Crew, a watchdog group in Washington, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, and a few other plaintiffs suing Donald Trump for violating both the Foreign Emoluments Clause and the Domestic Emoluments Clause. These are two clauses in the Constitution that are anti-corruption clauses. The Foreign Emoluments Clause prohibits federal officers from taking presents, emoluments, offices or titles of nobility of any kind whatever from a foreign government without congressional consent. And this is um, I got interested in this clause when I started writing about corruption because it was actually a very American clause like the, this, this clause saying that you couldn't take gifts and emoluments from foreign right, governments. Well, before we go further, you, yeah. I, I'm going to need you to, to define the word emolument. Oh, yes. Okay, sure. 
<laughs> and we, keep, we keep saying it. I keep falling down and the you hole. Keep, and you keep thinking, what kind of French moisturizer yeah, is like, that? Yeah, like I am extremely good at nodding confidently while people say things I don't understand, but nobody <laughs> can see me doing that here. Okay. So, uh, you know, an emollient is a benefit. It's a benefit. And if you look at the uh, word at the time, I think we now have this sense like, ah, oh, this strange word. Um, but it was used in all kinds of documents um, uh, at the time, and it covers all kinds of different benefits and profits and payments. It does include profits, because it, it yes. feels like there might be a difference between the king of Norway, you know, hands you a bejeweled pencil, and you have a, you know, a, an international frozen food conglomerate, and you make money from such and such. Uh, the one thing I want to establish as we go into this, because I think it's important for thinking about Trump, is that one way of thinking about this is that it's about gifts. It's about something that a foreign government just gives you to, to make you feel good. And another issue is Donald Trump has a hotel yeah. that has his name on it and his face on it and his name on it again in Scotland and he's in Istanbul and over and over and over again. But arguably – and that hotel can get money from the government. It can get tax breaks. All kinds of things can happen. But they're not, you could argue they're not giving him a gift. He's just a businessman who has international. Yeah. Interests. So the, the clause um, prohibits both gifts and emoluments. And it's really important that it includes both of those prohibitions because it's very clear that it's not just about the gifts. It would have been a very different clause if it just says that the federal officer cannot take presents of any kind, whatever, from foreign governments. Um, instead, it says presents. Uh, emoluments, uh, titles of nobility and, and offices. And if you look at the cases of the time or the understanding of emoluments at the founding, it was used to describe commercial transactions as well as uh, payments in relationship to holding an office. So it's a very broad understanding. It starts broad and then it gets broader because it's one of the very few clauses in the Constitution that tells you how to read it. It has this phrase, of any kind, whatever. So, like, if you had any doubt about the scope of this oh, word, interesting. we're going to read the broadest possible understanding of the clause. Now, you might say, oh, dear, what are we going to do about the king of Norway giving individual pens? You know, that'll sort of mess up foreign relations if the king of Norway isn't allowed to give a pen. And the answer is, well, you actually, the king of Norway can give you a pen and you can keep it as long as you get the consent of Congress. And what Congress has done is develop in the presence area, not in the emoluments area, but in the presence area, is develop a basically body of law that provides for de minimis exceptions so that you don't have to turn to the king and say, I'm not taking this right now. But if it's under a couple hundred dollars, you can just say thank you. But once you rise to the level of over a couple hundred dollars, you just have to go through a procedure in order to be able to take the present. But and, and there's something interesting about this here that you say in the book, um, which is that this was actually un unusual. This is a, a Americans did this and it caused a lot of diplomatic confusion and friction for all you have. I think this was actually an op-ed you wrote, but you give this example of President Martin Van Buren having to write a letter to the imam of Muscat telling him he cannot accept horses, pearls, a Persian rug, shawls and a sword. Because it was against the law. And, yeah. and the imam is offended because other countries do have much more of a gift culture. They do offer titles onto each other. And that, that this is something that exists in American history for a purpose and is part of our distinct character. Absolutely. It was called a fundamental law of our republic in that uh, letter when Van Buren was writing back. There's a version of this in the Articles of Confederation. 
And there were a series of gifts given by the French king. And it actually caused some real problems because the diplomats didn't want to give offense. And it's not just that they didn't want to give offense. You're a totally new country that may or may not survive, right? And you're willing to put this principle above the fear of causing some problems with foreign relations. It just shows you how incredibly important this was to Americans to reject what they saw as the corrupt culture of Europe. And so there's there's some pride in the early understanding that we're going to stand up against that corrupt culture. We're going to reject corruption and we're going to reject foreign influence. But also they're pretty smart. They get it that foreign countries are going to try to influence policy by giving gifts or by having financial relationships in the commercial sphere with the officers and that that can actually really have an influence. So what are the emoluments that Donald Trump is receiving? Um, I'm, I'll just go through a few. One, um, you may be familiar with Trump Tower. It seems to be in the news fairly regularly. I've um, heard of it. So that there's two foreign governments who are tenants in Trump Tower. One is the commercial um, – well, one is basically the government of China. The Commercial and Industrial Bank of China is one of the largest tenants in Trump Tower. That lease is up for um, renegotiation in 2019. So we have money from the Chinese government going into Donald Trump's pocket every month and the possibility of the Chinese government using their leverage with that negotiation to leverage foreign policy. That's one one area. A second area is the uh, apprentice, uh, the royalties for the apprentice and the celebrity apprentice and the new celebrity apprentice flow from, in at least two cases, foreign governments because the royalties come from the governments itself. So the question is, if you look at foreign governments, it's not any foreign money. It's not private foreign money. What we're concerned about is foreign governmental money. Um, then there's the other example that you mentioned, which is the Trump organization has developments and that there are financial benefits to those developments in Saudi Arabia and other countries that come from the government to the Trump organization. One thing that that uh, more likely falls under the the gifts part of the presence part of the emoluments clause um, is the trademarks that um, the Trump um, received just immediately after uh, agreeing to continue to support the one China policy. So the Trump organization had been seeking trademarks in China for many, many years. Uh, finally came out saying, we do support the one China policy and within a week gets the trademarks. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Gets the trademarks approved. That doesn't seem fishy at all. <laughs> right. That seems totally normal. <laughs> right. And so, there, but to your question about what's an emolument and what's a present, that looks to be more like a, a present because it's something that was a pure gift. It's not part of a commercial transaction. It's just, here you go for, for helping us out on One China. And one of the things that is unnerving about this is, in addition to that, there are all these ties and linkages. And, and given that we don't have his tax returns, there's a lot we may not know. Trump really just does seem to be the kind of guy who, if you make sure that your biggest parties happen in his hotels and you sort of show that he's great, that it's a non-trivial part of foreign policy right there. I think that's right. And I think that's the the bet that foreign governments all over the world are making. I mean, like right. Saudi Arabia with that giant gold medal. <laughs> right, I know. It made me so embarrassed yeah, it should, yeah. that they had 
that they had pinned like how easy America was now going to be to manipulate. Yeah. And what's important is that there's two kinds of manipulation. One is that he can be having actual open conversations that we will not find out about that are kind of explicit deals, right? We don't know about that. And actually, this is one of the things the founders were worried about is because Charles II in the 17th century had taken a pension from the French king and in exchange really sold out a lot of British policy to the French. The terms of that sellout weren't made public for over a 100 years. So there could be private actual kind of transactional um, relationships that we will not find out about. But the other thing that's possible, which is what you're talking about, is Trump can be influenced without him knowing. And that's actually one of the key sort of psychological insights of the framers is that we are just we're influenced by people who give us stuff. We're influenced by people who make us rich. And it doesn't have to be transactional. It could just be like, hey, I kind of like these people now. Um, th- th- this is just basic psychology. And so you need a procedural protection like consent of Congress to sort of put the stops on that uh, subtle kind of influence. So what are the difficulties of suing? a sitting president of the United States. And where does this go from here? All all that we've seen so far is the a few comments right before Trump became president. And if you wonder about the impact of this suit, just remember that in the press conference right before he became president, he had a few things to talk about, but mostly he brought out his lawyer and a big stack of envelopes to say, don't worry, I'm not violating the emoluments clause. So clearly that they, and they should be, they, they have been impacted by this. After the government's reply, we'll give our own uh, reply and we'll get a sense of where they think the limits are. What we saw in January is that the Trump lawyers at the time, and this is before he's president, were saying he is going to give away all his profits from the Trump hotels that come from foreign diplomats. That's an emolument I didn't uh, talk about earlier. He's not doing that. Even if he was doing it, you don't get to, you don't get to sort of sin against the constitution and then pay a penance and say, Hey, I'm going to put in the treasury all this money that I should never have taken. Like you don't <laughs> sort of, sort of unilaterally deciding that you don't owe, owe the IRS money and then separately giving it to the treasury. You just right. don't, you don't get to do that. But that was the approach. And the other approach they had was that they said emoluments doesn't include commercial transactions. And we already talked about that. They're wrong as a matter of history and purpose, but uh, we'll see if that's part of their uh, brief going forward. But will, will courts, I mean, this is just going to betray my own ignorance. I actually don't know just how difficult it is to sue the president. I oh, mean, will okay. courts give you standing or does this, is there like a, does this end up in court or do, is it a sort of long shot that you're hoping a judge will? No, not at all. Offer? I mean, we're, uh, we're in court in the Southern District of New York. Um, there'll be a legal fight about whether the plaintiffs that we have have the right to sue. This is your standing question. But it's in terms of suing the president, I think the important thing to understand is we're not actually suing him for damages, which is problematic. We're just suing him for an injunction. Say, just stop. Just stop violating the Constitution. What that means is he'd have to divest from his business interests, uh, which is what other presidents have done. I mean, this is common practice, not just for presidents, but for federal officials to divest of their interests and put them in a blind trust. And he he should have done it before and he can do it now. And we hope the court agrees with us and says he has to do that going forward. So people, I think, hear 
the president is being sued for violating the Constitution. And people who are not fans of this president hope, oh, great, maybe the courts will just make him step down or something. That is no. not what this is. No, it is not. <laughs> no, no, this is I mean, I think there's there's a few different things. It's really destabilizing to have your president making foreign policy decisions when his fingers are in the pie. I mean, uh, it just casts a pall on every single foreign policy decision. But it also is a problem when your president is just openly violating the Constitution. I mean, that's a pro- that's a rule of law problem itself to say that I don't really care about the words here. Um, and uh, I think there's a value in him stopping um, that has to do with just basic rule of law principles as well. Picnics, potlucks, dinner parties, barbecues, all of it means that good food is essential to a successful summer. And now it's easier than ever to create delicious summer meals with Blue Apron. Because for less than 10 bucks a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. For me, the biggest draw is the ability to still cook at home and get that feeling of accomplishment from a meal well made while also getting to be a bit adventurous and try things I wouldn't usually think to make myself. For example, a couple of the meals available in in July include creamy shrimp rolls with quick pickles and sweet potato wedges, and fresh basil fettuccine pasta with sweet corn and cubanelle pepper. Plus, Blue Apron is completely flexible, so you can customize your recipes each week and choose a delivery option that fits your needs. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com best. You are going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's Blue Apron dot com slash best blue apron a better way to cook according to a new report published in the international business times it's actually not that expensive if you have the money to buy the loyalty of a member of congress specifically it's not that expensive to buy the loyalty of a member of congress if that person happens to be a Democrat. One of the case examples that they use in this report is the dismantling of Dodd-Frank legislation. And they found that for every $100,000 given to a Democrat, the chances that they would vote uh, uh, in favor of dismantling Dodd-Frank rose by 13.9%. You're almost 14% more likely to kill this legislation. That's really not a lot of money when you're talking about corporations who benefit from this Wells Fargo, Bank of America, UBS, who pull in tens of billions of dollars every single year. So maybe they have to spend two, 300,000 for a few different Congress people to get them to change their vote and gut a piece of regulation that prevents these big banks from committing crimes or makes the punishments a little bit harsher. But what this report really does is tells us exactly how corrupting money has become in our legislative process. $100,000 for a 14% increase in likelihood that you're going to vote in favor of the corporation rather than in favor of the people. 
there aren't a whole lot of citizens in the United States that can afford to give lots of members of Congress a couple hundred thousand dollars a piece, but there's plenty of corporations. And that's what's so scary about this. Yeah, there are liberal organizations that raise money and, and work on, uh, you know, campaign funding, uh, lobbying and things of that nature, but that money will never be enough to compete with even one fossil fuel company or even one big bank. You could take all of the grassroots money in this country, combine it, and you'll never get as much money for lobbying or direct came, uh, campaign donations as you would from a single pharmaceutical company or a single big bank or a fossil fuel company. We are up against such tremendous odds in this country. And it's all because of the conservative Supreme Court. That Citizens United ruling, it did damage to democracy, but most importantly, it did damage to the Democratic Party. If you look back at the timeline, of the top donors to the Democratic Party. Before Citizens United, it was trial lawyers and unions. You know, groups that literally exist to protect American workers. As soon as that Citizens United ruling hit, guess who took over as the top donor? Securities firms and Wall Street banks. And how has their voting habits changed since then? Well, we've seen it. We've seen Dodd-Frank dismantled and watered down by Wall Street lobbyists who are walking the halls of Congress working on that. We have seen them protect the big banks. We've seen them bail out the big banks instead of American taxpayers. We've seen the Justice Department slap very small fines on these banks that engage in criminal behavior and they don't put a single person behind bars. And the Democratic Party is to thank for that because the Republicans have always been corrupt. We've known that. But it wasn't until Citizens United came along that we really got to see the corruption within the Democratic Party. And this new report uh, published in International Business Times really kind of nails it home for us. $100,000 and suddenly a Democrat is willing to vote in favor of a corporation instead of a regular human being. In your talk, there was a, a, perhaps one of the funniest moments in your talk because the, the topic was not exactly humorous, but you talked about Din's families, and, and those are double-income, no-sex families. <laughs> that got a little laugh. Then, then you proceeded, and I thought this was very interesting. You asked a rhetorical, almost Socratic question. Where did the money go? Pause. Class. And I thought there could be at least one double meaning, perhaps two or three on there. It sounded as though you were addressing a class rather than a, a general public audience, but the answer to the question was also class, almost Marxist. Exactly. Now, I don't want to denigrate or impugn the integrity of anybody because I don't think that wealthy people in the United States have purposely set out to rig this game to gain most of the benefits of economic growth over the last 35 years. But you see, incrementally, once you open the door very wide to money in politics, almost invariably, big corporations and Wall Street and the very wealthy 
are going to have entree to politicians in such a way that politicians don't want to cross them. They don't want to bite the hands that feed them. And therefore, over time, incrementally, if you look at changes in laws and rules, not just taxes and subsidies and corporate welfare, as it's sometimes called, but also the actual rules of the game, property and intellectual property, patents, trademarks, how bankruptcy is organized, how and to what extent market power can be concentrated in the hands of a very few big, big companies, the extent to which, for example, mandatory arbitration clause in contracts prohibits people from having any day in court if they are customers or employees who have been badly treated by big corporations. When you look at the aggregate, all of this over time, the game is rigged. It is tipped in favor of the privileged and the powerful. Even if no individual member of the privileged and powerful class set out necessarily to do it in such a large fashion. And so the ultimate, it seems to me, goal has got to be to get big money out of politics, has got to be to wrest democracy back from what is essentially has become an American oligarchy and give it back to the people. And I don't say that in a kind of romanticized 1960 vision of the people. I simply mean in a very practical, very, very practical way. Um, people have got to be re-empowered or empowered uh, as citizens. Uh, otherwise, the anger will continue to grow. If it isn't Donald Trump, there'll be another dem demagogue after Donald Trump and another demagogue after that. And the democratic institutions on which our society have been built, those institutions will themselves corrode. I'm Paul Kennedy, and you're listening to Ideas. Robert Reich is an author and a professor of public policy at the University of California at Berkeley. He continues his lecture as part of the Lind Initiative in U.S. Studies at the University of British Columbia. Where will things go from here? Well, if I knew that, I would invest or take money out of Wall Street because a lot of this is tracking on Wall Street. That is, the reason you have a 13% increase in the Dow Jones Industrial Average since the election. Many people are surprised. Many people said, wait a minute, that doesn't, that, that doesn't make any sense because Wall Street usually reacts negatively to uncertainty. Well, if there was ever an uncertain president and presidency, it is Donald Trump. Why is Wall Street, why is the stock market going up by 13%? The answer is that the business Republicans feel that they're going to get what they want. And what do they want? They want a big tax cut for individuals and also mainly for big corporations. They also want deregulation with regard to the Affordable Care Act and the Dodd-Frank regulatory reform of Wall Street. They also want deregulation in terms of the costs of environmental protection. In other words, all of these 
that I just mentioned will drive up corporate profits. And to the extent that these are driving up corporate profits, they already are, that means stock prices are going to go up. So the Wall Street's betting over the last three months, the betting on Wall Street, that 13% rise, is directly attributable, in my view, to the betting of the Wall Street business Republicans that they will come out on top in the struggle with the Bannon authoritarian populists. That doesn't solve anything fundamentally, and I don't want you to hear me in an upbeat way. Uh, because the loss of environmental protections, the possibility that Wall Street could actually have a, another too-big-to-fail crisis in coming years, the unwinding of a lot of protections, health, safety, and workplace protections, is not something that anybody should want, necessarily. But nevertheless, I would rather have all of this than a presidency that was not only unpredictable, but one that was built on xenophobia and racism and misogyny and hatefulness. Citizens United. Uh, another five to four decision. S- same voter, same voters as in uh, essentially as in the Shelby County case, which allows the wealthiest people in this country to spend unlimited sums of money on independent expenditures. Talk a little bit about Citizens United and your view as to the impact it's had on American politics. Well, Citizens United didn't involve individuals. Actually, that right was given by the court in the Buckley case right. back in 1976. But Citizens United said that corporations and, by extension, labor unions could spend unlimited sums. But what happened after Citizens United is we started getting these super PACs, which are these independent groups, as long as they don't work with the candidate directly, although there's been a lot of that too, and the Federal Election Commission's not policing it. That's a different topic. Uh, you can give... $10 million, $50 million, however much you want to one of these so-called independent groups. And it's gotten even worse since then because now, rather than just super PACs, which at least have to disclose their donors, we now have uh, groups that are social welfare groups, so-called 501c4 groups, that act like super PACs, so they're engaged in political activity, but they don't disclose their donors. So somebody can make a $100 million contribution into that super PAC without anyone knowing That's that. right. And we know that corporations, for example, like to use this route They'd rather give to a 501c4 or a C6, which is a trade association like the Chamber of Commerce, because they don't want their name on what they're doing. And so um, not only is big money coming in, it's coming in and it's not being disclosed. And I just say, what I think is the primary problem is not a problem of corruption, but a problem of inequality. Why should it be that the wealthiest people in the United States and the wealthiest corporations have so much more of an ability to influence the outcome of elections and of public policy by influencing politicians who vote uh, than everybody else. It's a fundamental equality problem. And the Supreme Court, since the 1970s, has said equality is off the table. That can't be a reason. To leveling the playing field is a, is a, it, uh, it, it cannot be considered against the First Amendment. I think the court made a wrong turn 40 years ago. 
uh, and it really needs to rethink that uh, decision. Um, in other words, what they were saying is you have a First Amendment right to buy an election. Well, I don't like to use the term buying an election. I do. Well, but <laughs> what I would say is I, I analogize it to a lottery. In, in, you know, if we were picking our, uh, uh, you know, candidates by lottery, everyone gets one ticket, everyone gets an equal chance. What uh, Citizens United in other cases allow the wealthiest to do is to buy more tickets, to have much more of an influence over the outcome of elections and over policy than anything else. And that, that's really an important point, too. It's not just about who wins the election. It's about what do people do once they're in office. If you are a member of a city council and you know that if you don't vote the way the developer wants, someone's going to fund a million-dollar campaign against you, that is going to affect what you do. Let me just mention, apropos that, uh, last week in Los Angeles, $13 million collectively was spent on school board elections. And the other thing that this does is if I know you're running against me and you have the capability of having tens of millions of dollars in independent expenditures, putting up ugly ads on television in support of you, I got to spend half my life raising money as well, becoming dependent on wealthy people as well, and not spending time with my constituents. So it, it creates a very insidious and ugly process by which candidates, even the good guys, are forced to move away from town meetings and involvement with ordinary people to spend so much time, incredible amounts of time, just raising money. It is a very corrupting impact on the whole political process. I think the way to deal with this, given this, what the Supreme Court has done, which has limited the ability to stop big donations, is we need public financing of our elections. I could not agree with uh, you I, more. I, and we have some examples where cities and states have moved with some success in that direction. That's right. not? Maine and Arizona have done this. I'm very excited about an experiment that's just started in the city of Seattle, Washington, where they're using campaign finance vouchers. In my book, Plutocrats United, which explores all of this, I say that if we gave voters campaign finance funds that they could then donate to candidates or parties, this would be a way to empower voters, get them more interested in the process, and if not take big money out of the process, at least dilute its effect. And really, that's the kind of thing that could also could be done on the state and local level in a lot of places. And this is passing constitutional muster? So far, so good. There are some things you can't do with public financing, the Supreme Court has said. You can't give extra money when someone faces a wealthy opponent. You can't kind of compensate for that because that would be level of the playing field. And we can't do that. God forbid. But uh, there are public financing schemes that are constitutional. And I think they need to be generous enough that people will agree to participate. Because if they are just, you know, small potatoes and you're still worried about running against the opponent who's going to have a $10 million super PAC behind her, you're going to be in trouble. So you need to have adequate public financing. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. 
Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Let me tell you guys what, uh, I'm still too polite. You see this? I'm still, I got some brakes left in this car, right? Because I'm not going to name the group. Uh, but there's a very large progressive group. Mm-hmm. Um, when I asked them, hey, what's your strategy on getting money out of politics? Because it's clearly killing us, right? So, and, and Barney Frank uh, had this interview that is famous only in my mind, I think. It was with our reporter, Jordan Charon. It was a great, great interview during the primaries. And he said uh, what I now call the Barney Frank rule. He said, what do you want us to do? Get none of the money from the banks instead of 20%? And yes, Barney, that is what we want you to do. Because if the Republicans get 80 and you get 20, that is a perpetual losing strategy. That is a strategy doomed for failure. Instead, you have to upturn the system where we don't rely on banker money to win elections. Come on. I mean, Barney, you're supposed to be a smart guy. Okay, being the Washington generals to their Harlem Globetrotters is not a smart strategy. So, yeah, there, there, there is a different way to do this. The progressive group, then, like Barney Frank, mm-hmm. uh, says, no, 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 just wait, right? And so uh, it's what Martin Luther King called the tranquilizing uh, drug of gradualism. So I said, what's your plan to get money out of politics? They said, Supreme Court justices. <laughs> I said, wait a minute now, that this was before Scalia passed away. I said, you're waiting on someone to die and then hope a Democrat is in office, which, by the way, happened, and then we still didn't get it, right? And then you're going to wait around for years and years until they get a case. And you hope that they maybe overturn Citizens United, but liberals don't like to overturn precedent. It's ironic, right? But you hope that they overturn, but they're not going to overturn Buckley v. Vallejo and Bellotti that actually made corporate giving legal in the first place. That's, those are the decisions back in 76 and 78 made. Uh, bribery legal, right, in the form of campaign donations. So your strategy is to wait around for decades? Now that strategy has been pulverized because now Donald Trump is going to be president. You're going to get a conservative Supreme Court. You're going to have to wait a couple of more decades. No, no more waiting. No more waiting. Wolf-pack.com. We go to get the money out now. Now, the good news is you don't need any of these guys. You don't need a report. So the Republicans are going to have the president, they're going to have the Senate, they're going to have the Congress, and they're going to have the Supreme Court. You don't need any of it. An amendment is above all of those things. You change the system, wolf-pack.com. So meanwhile, those progressive groups who, by the way, sometimes get funded by the same millionaires and billionaires that go, hey, tap the brakes, not too much change, not too much change. Just wait, just wait. No more waiting, no more waiting. See, here's the other thing, guys. There's... uh, they have no uh, ground support. 
So I know we, we do Wolfpack and we, we got over 33,000 volunteers after tonight. We'll have over 34,000 volunteers, right? And when we go knock on doors, you know how many other progressive groups from Washington we run into? None. None. They got a bunch of fucking lobbyists, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, hey, where are you guys? We're, we're, no, look, grassroots guys are different, right? Grass, there's a couple of progressive grassroots folks, and you know what? We run into them, right? The big, big Washington progressive organizations never see you, motherfuckers. I don't see you. Paper tigers. So keep pushing your fucking paper around, okay? So wolf-pack.com, okay? What did I tell you when we launched it uh, five years ago? Done running, okay? And we got to pick up that mantle again, man. They're not coming for us. We're coming for them. Let's go get them, wolf-pack.com. And you thought I used to say it before? Don't buckle up. Because <laughs> what, what other hope do you have left? As Trump would say, what do you have left to lose? Come on and we'll see Like we'll free Push the pedal down, watch the world around fly by us. Come on and we'll try one last time. More for the fun, one more time to find you. And here we go, there's nothing left to choose. And here we go, there's nothing left to So here's a crazy thing. Almost everyone I know agrees that the government of the United States, the government of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, is completely broken. And for most of us, it's really obvious why. Lobbyists write our laws, politicians are bought, and corruption is infecting every issue that's close to our hearts. But what's even crazier is that we've all convinced ourselves that there's nothing we can do about it. And that is one of the biggest and most dangerous lies in American politics. The problem isn't that corrupt politicians are breaking the law. The problem is that we don't even have laws for them to break. Right now, corruption is legal in America. And that is something we can fix. Here's exactly how we do it. Right now, it's perfectly legal for special interests to hand huge checks to the members of Congress who regulate them. It's perfectly legal for those same members of Congress to pass laws to help out lobbyists who offer them a cushy job when they leave office. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. From million-dollar bundlers to the threat of a super PAC smear campaign, there are literally dozens of perfectly legal ways to buy a public official. But that makes the solution pretty obvious. Make corruption illegal. All of it. And that is where the American Anti-Corruption Act comes in. It introduces a strict set of ethical standards. So if you're an elected official on, say, the Senate Banking Committee, you can't take donations from banking lobbyists. It mandates full transparency so the American people know exactly who's trying to buy our elected officials. It changes how elections are funded so clean candidates can win without selling out to special interests. And it does all of this while protecting the people's right to free speech. That's because the act was written by top constitutional scholars, conservative and liberal alike, to stand up to the toughest scrutiny. You can read the full text of the act at anticorruptionact.org. And speaking of the Constitution, let's talk about a little Supreme Court ruling called Citizens United. Here's the thing. While a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United would help clamp down on those shady groups with names like Americans for Freedom and Jobs and More Freedom, It wouldn't fix any of the problems we talked about before. 
You could pass that amendment tomorrow and the bribery, the extortion, the conflicts of interest, all of it would still be legal. But in a weird way, that's actually good news because it means we can solve a huge part of this problem with a plain old law. The question is, how do we get it passed? I mean, asking Congress to do it is like asking a fox to put a lock on the hen house. The greasy, dirty, disgusting fox. And also, the fox is a congressman and not a fox at all. Look, my point is, we can go around Congress using a little something called the ballot initiative process. It lets citizens pass laws ourselves. No politicians required. All we have to do is gather enough signatures, put anti-corruption acts up to a simple public vote, and we can start fixing the corrupt system right at home. Here's our plan, in five steps. First, we'll need a law to pass. One that, you know, actually fixes things. Okay, Anti-Corruption Act. Check. Next, we need to bring conservatives and progressives together and get organized. It's the only way to build enough power to defeat the politically entrenched and well-funded opposition. We're in good shape there, though, because everyone already agrees we need to fix our corrupt system. In fact, local Tea Partiers and progressive activists actually teamed up to pass America's first Anti-Corruption Act in 2014. And the movement has racked up even more victories since. There are more than 22,000 cities in America where we can use the ballot initiative process to pass locally tailored anti-corruption acts. And this really matters. We're protecting our communities from corruption, so our schools, hospitals, local resources, and jobs are no longer under the constant threat of getting sold out to special interests. Plus, citywide initiatives and resolutions build momentum for the most powerful way we can go around Congress passing anti-corruption acts in states. State acts not only clean up statewide corruption, they change how elections are funded so clean candidates can win office without selling out to special interests. That goes for federal candidates from that state too. Once we pass these state laws, we can send a new wave of representatives and senators to Washington. State by state, we can fill Congress with leaders who got elected under the rules of our new anti-corruption acts, replacing entrenched politicians with new blood. See how this works? By taking the fight to the states, we can fix Congress from the outside. And when these new representatives get to Congress, free from dependence on special interests, they'll be free to vote for and pass the American Anti-Corruption Act at the federal level to fix this problem for good. So that's the plan, and 500,000 Represent Us members couldn't agree more. We're bringing conservatives and progressives together to pass anti-corruption acts across America and put power back in the hands of the people, where it belongs. We need millions more people to join, and that includes you. Start by clicking here, and we'll tell you exactly how you can help. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, fight corruption to save America. As our country marks its 241st birthday, this year of all years is especially ripe for reflection. Where we've been heading and where we are right now, politically and socially, is disturbing to say the least, but we can still change course. If nothing else, as Americans, we can be proud of our track record of change and progress. It may be made with two steps forward and one step back, but it's progress nonetheless. But we don't get there because of famous politicians and speeches. We get there because people like you care.
care enough to get involved and push us in the right direction. So today, we're highlighting three effective ways you can roll up your sleeves and fight corruption and money in politics, the primary sources of our ills as a nation. If you're passionate about pushing for change from the inside, get involved with the Justice Democrats. Justice Democrats believe that the Democratic Party's alignment with Wall Street over working men and women has allowed Republicans to take over most state legislators, most governorships, Congress, and the presidency. Their plan is to promote quality progressive candidates to replace corporate-backed Democrats and in turn rebuild the Democratic Party from scratch to be a party that fights for a clear progressive vision. Visit justicedemocrats.com to read about the candidates and get involved. If you want to work locally on an issue campaign to fight corruption nationally, get involved with Represent.us, whose explainer video we just heard. In communities across America, Represent.us members, including conservatives, progressives, and everyone in between, are working together to pass local anti-corruption acts. In 2016, Represent.us members passed the first statewide anti-corruption act in South Dakota. But this isn't one-size-fits-all. Every municipal and state anti-corruption act creates their own common-sense ethics, conflict of interest, transparency, and campaign finance laws. State acts create the opportunity for federal candidates from the state to campaign on the anti-corruption platform, accountable to their constituents, not special interests. So head over to represent.us today to find your local chapter and get involved. And then finally, if you're passionate about bypassing Congress altogether and using the states to make change, get involved with the Young Turks organization Wolfpack, which you've been hearing about on this show for years. Their plan to save democracy in the U.S. is by getting a much-needed amendment to the Constitution that will establish elections which are free of the corrupting influence of money in our political system and fair enough that any citizen can run for office, not just millionaires and their allies. So go to wolf-pack.com to find out how you can get involved in your state and help bring us one step closer to passing the free and fair elections amendment. All three of these movements are worth your time and are working in concert with each other, not at odds with one another. So pick the one that fits your style and passion and get involved. The turn of the century activist, social worker, and Nobel Prize recipient Jane Addams once said, quote, unless our conception of patriotism is progressive, it cannot hope to embody the real affection and the real interest of the nation, unquote. Now that is a brand of patriotism I can get down with. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if fighting the forces that continue to steal power from the people is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about fighting corruption to save America via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. So what are we gonna do? There are many serious problems afflicting American politics right now, but both prior to Trump and now in in the Trump era, one of the most severe, in my view, is the absolute pervasive appearance of corruption in all things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, e- even among p- 
people who are just normal politicians, right? I, I mean, recently, President Obama left the presidency and then gave a, a $400,000 speech to Cantor Fitzgerald. And Cantor Fitzgerald is not a toxic bond firm that I know of. I mean, they're not somebody who people hate in the way they've come to hate, you know, a Goldman Sachs. But it's the kind of thing where, you know, I think Obama's presumably looked at that and said, yeah, these guys are not a big deal. You know, like, I'm going to go give them a speech. But it's just it's kind of everywhere now and it's corrosive and well, it's upsetting I, you know, to people. He shouldn't have done it, not because it's against the law. Right. Um, and, I, and I don't need to spend a lot of time on the dangers of his particular action. But it does reflect um, and it sort of taps into people's readiness for cynicism. Right. So it's uh, saying, oh, everybody's, uh, you know, not that he's doing anything illegal, not that he is corrupt per se, but that one might hope that he would use the incredible public platform he has and he makes enough money else else the, the thing it caused me to reflect on because then shortly thereafter um hillary clinton was was interviewed at recode and you know asked about the the speeches she gave particularly to goldman sachs and she said everybody gives these speeches right like all my predecessors yeah. got to do it and i think that's a little bit where presumably obama's come from too a lot of people did it and Cantor fitzgerald wouldn't have looked necessarily toxic to him though they are a bond firm and this kind of everybody does it. Yeah. Trump begins moving the bar in very, very different ways. But I think people like sort of step back from this and the whole thing, the whole edifice seems rotten to them, even in places where it isn't, which well, I think is quite dangerous. Because there's a lot of incredible public servants. Yeah. And and at one example of this, and I think it relates to your legalism point, though, is um, Clint Hillary Clinton's foundation. Yeah. Um, that the defense of Hillary Clinton's foundation by the Clinton team and others was that it's not illegal, which is true. Uh, not illegal. Um, you know, I, I, it raises shadows of the emoluments clause, but it doesn't look like an emoluments clause violation. But once you get in a world where you're saying we can do anything that isn't illegal and it's okay, um, that's a very dangerous world. And it also suggests two different kinds of language. Uh, one of the things Mark Twain writes about as a novelist, not as an essayist in his book, The Gilded Age, is that the language of corruption in that time really splits where there's an elite that thinks a whole bunch of things aren't corrupt. They're just the way things are. And everybody else is saying, wait a sec, the whole system is corrupt. And I think we have that kind of split of language where uh, elites just get used to things and say, that's not corrupt. That's just the way we do things. We heard clips today starting with On the Media, taking a look at America's lost anti-corruption history. The Ezra Klein Show spoke with Zephyr Teachout about what exactly the emoluments clause is all about. Ring of Fire discussed the study that shows just how cheap it is to buy a vote from a member of Congress. Ideas explained how the game gets rigged. The Bernie Sanders Show discussed the effects of Citizens United. The Young Turks talked about why the watch-and-wait strategy needs to be dead and gone. Represent.us laid out their strategy to fix 
fix our problem with corruption. Our activism for today is a bit of an explainer on a variety of movements, all working on different aspects of rooting corruption out of the system. And finally, we just heard Zephyr teach out again on the Ezra Klein show, explaining how our language has been split in how we talk about corruption. You may have heard some similarity between that clip and my recent explanation of the difference between how Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters see our system these days. So it sort of turns out that Mark Twain and I are on a similar wavelength, but no big deal. Uh, anyway, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Howdy, Jay. It's Eli from Northern California. Just responding to the chastity belt and this wallet is not a gun doohickey. I think this is a really good example of the only way that capitalism can naturally respond to injustice with this thin veil of security to the purchaser. Uh, it's sad, you know, it's like sad to see this individualistic response to these problems, but I also don't want people to suffer and they probably don't want to suffer either. And I really hope that these capitalist band-aids don't prevent people from forcing larger organizations to be accountable for the good that they are supposed to provide to society. Um, but I think the debate sort of, or the weirdness sort of comes down to quote, freedom unquote. People are free to purchase things that help them not die. But also, I want people to live in a society in which they have the freedom from not even having to make or think about making that purchase. Thanks for everything you do. Hi, Jay. My name's Mark. I'm calling from Santa Barbara. Great show, as always. Just wanted to uh, leave a message about David Packman's point. I really agree that we need to take a hard look at Saudi Arabia. But I couldn't more strongly disagree with the point he made when he said that you really can't compare Islamic radical fundamentalist terror and radical Christian terror. I think that's a pretty limited worldview. Case in point, the Iraq war, the most recent one, the night before George Bush, who was a fundamentalist Christian, pushed the button. He met with fundamentalist Christian preachers, which ended up in a war against a country that had never attacked us, and over a dead, over a million dead Iraqis. I was in Iraq, in Fallujah, and uh, part of my job was embedding with Iraqi people. And I can tell you that the predominant thought over there was that the war and the ensuing violence that this nation committed was indeed Christian terror. And a large part of the world looks at it that way. So I think to leave that argument off the table and not consider it when we're talking about Islamic terrorism uh, leaves out a very important part of the equation as a large part of the world looks at the United States as Christian terrorists who have killed millions of people. So I just wanted to make that point. I didn't want to let that go by without saying something that I strongly, strongly believe in the work you're doing and appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I want to respond to that last voicemail we heard, and I will get to explaining to the best of my ability cross-cultural terrorism in a moment. But first, the more important news, it is podcast a 
awards season. So if you are hearing the sound of my voice in the month of July, then please go to podcastawards.com and click the big nominations are open button, follow the directions, and then nominate best of left in the news and politics category. It's just that easy. You only have to do it once and you're all set and you have my undying gratitude. Now let's get to this topic. I'm going to start by playing just a short clip from David Packman for context. I think this pretty much encapsulates what the caller was responding to. You start to see from some the memes about terror has no religion and we are all one people and a hesitation to talk about Islam. Or if you talk about Islam, you have to talk about how all religions are equally to blame for terror, which just isn't true. Any sensible person realizes that. But there needs to be a serious conversation. And I am not talking about a serious conversation where we just criticize Muslims at large. I am talking specifically a conversation about Saudi Arabia and Wahhabism. Okay, so my interpretation of David's comments is that he was going just with the more simplified version of the definition of terrorism, focusing on individuals, you know, at that individual level, the caller. You know, the counterpoint is basically that you can compare the different religions, uh, acts of terrorism. They they just end up being in different forms, so they get defined a little bit differently. So we're not comparing apples to apples. This may be less of a disagreement on an issue and more of a reframing or redefining. Um, but if if we wanted to know what David thought about it, we'd just have to ask him. Uh, as for me, here are my thoughts about various forms of violence that are either called terrorism or military action, depending on who you ask. So first of all, there are cultural definitions. There's the classic one man's freedom fighter slash patriot is another man's terrorist. That's, you know, just old classic uh, sort of understanding of different sides of, of an issue will see the exact same action completely differently. But to get deeper and a lot more complicated... Uh, I like to focus on the geopolitical reality. So Christian majority countries like ours have more weapons, bigger militaries, and have demonstrated their willingness to use them. So imagine for a moment that you are an American, Islamophobic, Christian, fundamentalist, extremist who wants to wipe Islam off the map. You live in a country that has shown its willingness to elect people like George W. Bush, who literally called his anti-terrorism policy a crusade, a religious dog-whistle word. And then he went on to invade multiple Muslim countries using the world's largest military. So if you're in that situation, the most effective thing you can do to reach your goal of Muslim obliteration is to just keep doing what you're doing. Just work to elect more people like that and push for more and more wars using the awesome power of that military. And if you have an outlet like that for your ideology, what motivation do you have to go blow yourself up or drive a truck through a crowded square? You know, it doesn't make sense. And keep in mind that it doesn't matter if the president or the Congress or whoever is launching those wars agrees with that extremist Christian view in order for that Christian person to have their anti-Muslim bloodlust at least partially satisfied and to believe that politics is the way to accomplish their goals. Now, on the other side, imagine you are a Middle Eastern Muslim fundamentalist who wants to wipe Christianity off the map. Your government doesn't have the kind of military capabilities as the U.S., so no matter how much you would like to use the power of your government and its military to attack Christians, you just can't do it. That's not an option. So you have to come up with 
alternative tactics. Uh, one of those tactics is overt terrorism with the goal of having your enemies destroy themselves, mostly from the inside out, causing internal strife or stripping away freedoms, spending trillions on wars in response, etc., etc. So down on that kind of an individual level on that side, you can see how it makes a degree of logical sense why one in that position would commit an act of terrorism in order to forward their ideological goals. Now, the way this gets discussed by people like Bill Maher and Sam Harris is that they just look at the raw numbers of individual terrorist acts, they see that Muslims commit more acts of terrorism than Christians, and they see that Muslims usually even claim that their religion was their motivation to terrorize, and they just stop the conversation right there, and they use that as all the evidence they need that at this particular time and place in history, there is something fundamentally backward and terrible about Muslims that caused them to act in such a barbaric way. And they would go on to say, not all Muslims, of course, but just a certain number of them have been infected this way, but disproportionate compared to other religions. Now, what they miss is that it's not the religion that's the prime mover here. It may be a close second, but the role of geopolitical realities and all of the various nuances of the context of a person's life always precedes anything else as the prime mover. To demonstrate this, let's imagine for a moment if roles were reversed and one of the Muslim-majority countries controlled the most powerful military on the planet and showed a willingness to use it, while Americans were relatively worse off without the power to respond in kind, uh, then there's every reason to believe that Christian extremists would be the ones committing individual acts of terrorism out of a sense of desperation, and the Muslim extremists would be the ones sitting comfortably at home working to just elect and re-elect religious extremists to lead their country so that they could launch ever more wars against Christian nations, all the while pointing to the act of terrorism committed by Christians as a justification for those wars. Now, that's just one part of it. Uh, there's actually another nuanced wrinkle in this story that I want to touch on, and that is the structure of our governments themselves and the complicated ways that they interact with religion. Now, in America, we are a Christian-majority nation, but we opted a long time ago to create a government that's explicitly non-religious, even though, as a side note, those waters have been quite muddied over the years, and we have a lot of people who would prefer that it be an explicitly Christian nation run by a Christian government. Now, in many Muslim-majority nations, the government is often explicitly religious. So the context in which people live under these two types of governments is quite different. And I think that the better contrast to draw is not Christian versus Muslim, but religious versus secular. Think back to that American Islamophobic Christian fundamentalist from a moment ago. Now, I would agree that a person like that is already pretty far gone, but do you think that if the American government were officially and explicitly a Christian entity, that that fundamentalist is likely to be more or less extreme in their beliefs? And if you think it's likely that they would be more extreme and emboldened in their beliefs, then do you think it's because that's something only a Christian would do? Or would an extremely religious person of any denomination be emboldened to become more extreme when their religious views are mirrored by their government? And again, if the roles were reversed, if majority Muslim countries all had secular governments, 
would that likely have the opposite effect, subduing, at least to some degree, the Muslim extremists in those countries. Personally, I think that it's a universal reaction. I think that secular people feel emboldened by a secular government, religious people feel emboldened by a religious government, white supremacists feel emboldened by a white supremacist government, as we're witnessing firsthand right now, etc. So again, religion is involved, intricately involved, but it's not necessarily the prime mover here. Muslim extremists aren't necessarily more extreme than Christian extremists because of their religion, but because of the geopolitical context they find themselves in. They live in a context in which religious extremists can feel emboldened by the government because the government is religious, and that makes that whole phenomenon more likely. And they also live in a context in which they do not have access to institutional power like the world's largest and most active military, which makes alternative tactics like terrorism more appealing in pursuit of their goals because they don't have the other option. I'm sure if they could sit back and watch as their government shot cruise missiles into the countries of their enemies, they'd probably be satisfied with that and not go think they need to commit individual acts of terrorism. Now, if you're new to the show, let me explain something I've said many times before. There is a big difference between explaining something and excusing it. So to be clear, I'm trying to explain terrorism, not excuse it. And secondly, I'm also not saying that terrorism and military warfare are morally equivalent. It's a lot more complicated than that, but I am saying that they are a lot closer to each other than we usually allow ourselves to believe. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. You can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Forget